104.5 The Zone's non-stop sports talk continues with a look at Nashville's teams and at news around the nation from the lead writer of 104.5TheZone.com. This is The Big Six. The Big Six with Jason Martin. Presented by Renters Warehouse. And here we go. Straight up, almost 6 o'clock by my watch. Means it's time for the one and only Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. Glad to have you with us on a Thursday here in the Music City. Beautiful Thursday. 85 degrees outside? Maybe a hair warmer than I needed to be. Quite frankly, I'm Jason Martin. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. Blessed beyond measure. Hope you recognize that you are as well. 615-737-1045. 737-1045 is how you reach this program. Next segment, I will talk to new men's basketball coach at Belmont, Casey Alexander, and just what's been his life over the past four to five weeks and certainly even over the past couple of days should be a fascinating discussion. I've talked to him before. Great guy, great interview. Stick around for that coming up in the next segment. We'll also talk some Masters, good and bad, and also the fact that I still can't watch all of this tournament on TV in 2019 and how much that still drives me insane because I don't care if you put this thing on pay-per-view. I, I, whatever you need to do at Augusta National to make this possible for me, I need you to make it possible for me. Yes, I know I can watch Amen Corner. I don't want to watch Amen Corner. I like Amen Corner. I want to watch 1 through 18, and I want to watch it all day long. It's 2019. We should not be at the mercy of Augusta National in order to watch all of the premier golf tournament in the sports. You don't turn into the Daytona 500 and get the last 100 laps. You don't. This is the only sport in which this seems to happen, and it continues to happen every year, and we'll talk about it before the end of the show. But another thing happened last night here in the Music City, a very late puck drop. Thanks to the NHL and the stars win three to two. And so yesterday I asked questions on this program about two larger themes, expectation and pressure and momentum carrying over from the finish to the regular season to the latter argument. Nashville fans are going to want to hope that this was just a blip on the radar and that eight, two and one finish that ended the year that gave them their second straight Central Division title, that that was a signal of the level of hockey that this team can play. Because there is no question that they started playing better hockey late in the season. Schedule wasn't exactly a beast, but they showed what one should or would expect from this on-paper roster, which is probably on paper the strongest roster this team has had. That said, we know how inconsistent they've been. Because we've sat there and we've witnessed it ourselves. We have observed it ourselves. We've watched this team play all year long. I kind of ran down that litany, almost that history of what this team has looked like throughout the year. How on fire they were on the ice to start the season. Just all-time great how great they were playing early. And then how they began to struggle during the middle of the season. After that red-hot start, they dealt with some injuries. And then they just started looking wishy-washy out there. I don't know how many medium Dunkin' coffees I lost due to home losses during that slump. And then they began to sort of get it together. You got the trade deadline. You got Boyle before the trade deadline. You get Granlund. You get Simmons. A little bit of hope. I remember having a couple of people on the big six to discuss it with me. And they all said, you know, this should really make this team better. Well, Granlund sure didn't make the team better last night. 
Now, Simmons was definitely a force from a physical standpoint. I don't know if you need him out there as much as you need speed based on what I saw yesterday. I read John Glennon's piece of The Athletic a little bit earlier, and he sort of seconded that, that the physicality might already be out there with Austin Watson and other players, that, and Brian Boyle in particular. Brian Boyle absolutely leveled um, one of the stars in the first period. But it was going to take more than wishy-washy play to win the division. And so they take advantage of a pretty weak schedule down the stretch, and they get those last three wins. And then you get to the playoffs, and we know this. The playoffs in a seven-game series are a much different animal than anything else in sports. Because if you're not consistent, or if you cannot take advantage of situations that are designed to assist you, to help you, you could be donezo pretty quickly. And so I had Alex Doherty of A to Z Sports on last night, and I asked him not how bad the Preds' power plays, because that's not a question that needs to be asked on sports radio. Because anybody listening to this knows how bad the power play is for Nashville. 12.6% success rate, lowest in the NHL, utter dumpster fire. What I asked him was, how important is the power play going to be in this series when we knew going in it was going to be defensive and goals were going to be at a premium? I mean, goals are at a premium anyway in hockey, but especially between these two teams and the way that they play defense. And I knew that his answer was going to be some version of gigantic or enormous or immense or massive or whatever it is, whatever other hyperbolic-sounding term that's actually accurate that Alex Doherty was going to go with. But it's really this simple, ladies and gentlemen. If Nashville is going to continue to look this inept, this discombobulated, this inconsistent and poor with a man advantage, even late in the game after Peter Laviolette pulled Pecorine with the advantage on the ice, they looked terrible. And if that's going to be the case, then this is going to be a real short postseason for this team. And we're going to be talking about the NFL draft even more and even faster than expected. Now, it's not like 0-1 in a series is the end of the world. But there's that ugly stat out there that the Predators have never won a playoff series after losing the first game. I think they're 0-9. I think that's what I saw David Beauclair tweet last night. So after a solid first period, Bridgestone is jazzed up. Uh, We will just sort of gloss over the big and rich national anthem. But they've got a definite energy on the ice. There's there's energy in the crowd. They're getting the free T-shirts that are on the seats. Everybody is ready to go. And I think that most of us expected that the Predators were going to come out ready to go. And they were. They were fast. They were going after every puck. They had a lot of scoring chances. They were forcing the issue. And then came the second period, and it was all Dallas. And I mean all Dallas. They're out there skating far harder. They're more physical. They seem to have the puck in the Preds' end constantly. And you just knew, even as good as we know Pecorine can be, they were starting to ask him to do too much in that third period. So that 1-0 lead evaporates into a tie, and then all of a sudden you look up and it's 3-1 stars with about 10 minutes left. The effort that they had early in the game, that Brian Boyle hit that I mentioned that flattened Jason Dickinson, and you can go ahead and thank me for not tweeting out that Brian Boyle knocked the Dickinson out of him. I guess I just gave it away right there, but I I fought the urge to tweet that out last night and go dad joke on it. 
But it was a legal hit. It was a brutal hit, but it was a legal hit. And that's what Brian Boyle is. He's a physical player. But Nashville's on fire out of the gates. Everything feels right. And I'd heard Christopher Martell say on the neutral zone, and I mentioned it also yesterday, that it's not really about starting well. Obviously, it's important to start well. You don't want to go out there and suck for 20 minutes. But it's, starting well is not enough. What it is is about sustenance. It's about sustaining a level of intensity for 60 minutes or the vast majority of 60 minutes. Nashville didn't. And now they're down a game in this series to a team that they're more talented than, that they're certainly deeper than, and a team that they should beat. But not one that's going to roll over or doesn't have the skill to beat them. More national media types than some might have expected picked Dallas to upset the Preds. And this is just going to add more fuel to that fire. So Saturday's game two becomes crucially important. And even after P.K. Subban scored that second goal with about six minutes left, the last 313 in particular, that game was a total disaster in terms of execution. The game was not a disaster. Now, a loss is a loss, but there was stuff to like. The first period was really good, but it was a disaster in that last 313. They got a couple of chances, but generally they just got whooped. They got beaten to the puck. They got beaten to the lines. Ben Bishop's not even having to stand on his head to keep Dallas in front. Maybe the most intense two, two and a half minutes in all of sports is a playoff hockey game in the third period in a one-goal situation. And it didn't feel that way here. Felt like we were just cruising to the finish line. The urgency just was not there, and the Predators simply were faster. Or, pardon me, they were faster early, and the Stars were faster at this point in time. Even Ryan Ellis is out here talking about, after the game, that the Predators need to limit the amount of time that the Stars are out there skating harder than the Preds. Yeah, you know what, Ryan? That does sound like a pretty good place to start. Limiting their speed or being as fast as they are. Yeah, I think that that probably would help. For about 35 minutes of this game, the Predators just look completely inferior on the ice because games aren't played on paper. And that was enough. 1-0 lead with that defense for the Preds, Pecorine at home. That should be the time where you put the foot on the gas and, in effect, you're placing a foot on the throat. But that is not what happened. Heiskanen happened. Lethargy wearing gold jerseys happened. And ultimately, a 3-2 defeat happened. Inconsistent is the descriptor that applies to this team more than any other. All season. This game, game one here in this first round of the NHL playoffs, was a microcosm of the entire season wrapped into 60 minutes. A good start, a poor middle, some flashes late, but ultimately not enough to go get that win after falling into a two-goal hole midway through that third period. It just wasn't good enough. And the Preds have lost five of their last six home playoff games. They've won just two of their last seven. You remember that home ice advantage in Smashville? How tough it is to play in front of our crowd, how they, the NHL even voted other teams voted, players voted. Nashville is the hardest place to play in the league. That is a story that's seeming more and more antiquated right now because this crowd was taken out of this game as the Stars started to crush them in the second period. And before Subban's goal in the third, before he even was able to make it a one-goal game to 3-2, to two, people are heading for the exits. And that's not me pointing fingers and saying, how dare you? It's me explaining that the feelings surrounding this team right now when they fall behind that hope that has been built over this last couple of years on this roster, it, it's just not there in the crowd. This is a team that can front run. That much we know.
but they have not shown what I would consider a propensity to recover all that well, at least not as of late in the playoffs. And the problem in falling behind against a team like Dallas, and it's the same story with Nashville, is that defensively they're both good, and it's tough to get opportunities. So you've got to make the most of the ones that you get. 0-3 on the second period power play, and then nothing much to phase Bishop in the third, particularly after PK made it a one-goal game, and you expected, okay, momentum's starting to turn. Predators should be able to really force the issue here. Let's see what they can do. And that's not what happened. Laviolette, after the game, said the Preds were faster in the first, skating great, dominating the action. Then the second and third, Dallas looked to have gone up a gear as the Predators dropped one or two gears. And that's how it felt. They were skating circles around Nashville. They were controlling the flow. They were controlling the pace. They were keeping Pecorine uncomfortable. They had traffic in front of him all night long in those last two periods. He never was able to... His eyes, those deflections, that's really tough in short situations. And they had big guys in front of him all night long. The Predators squandered that 1-0 lead. That is something they don't usually do. In the regular season this year, when scoring first, the Predators were 35-4-1. But what I told you last night applies. None of those impressive numbers or even the unimpressive numbers matter at this point. The only number that matters is the number one right now. Literally the loss, that number one, and overcoming it. If they drop to 0-2, if they lose game two on Saturday... I do not think this Preds team has four or five in them. I just don't see it. I'm not going to call it a must win literally because that is erroneous to use the word literally in this case. They could win four or five. They could win four in a row and still win in six, which was my prediction that the Preds would win this series in six. It's not literally a must win. But figuratively, and for all intents and purposes, in terms of my thought process, and I would say most of you probably agree with me, it feels like a must-win. This is a big one. They've got to show up, and they've got to be the aggressors in Game 2. And it can't be 20 good minutes, disappear for 35, come back for a Final 5 where you're doing a little bit right and expect that that's going to get it done. you got to show up to play 60 minutes of hockey. The team knows it. All the interviews post-game basically indicated that they realized that they just didn't have the energy in that second, third period, and that the stars were out there skating harder. Power play's got to be better, but as Alex Doherty told me last night, there's no fixing it right now. It's just putrid. Hopefully they're going to be able to make something out of the power play in this series, but this was... this. Look, I don't know what the threat level is right now. I don't know if we're a red or an orange or whatever, but I can tell you if it's 0-2, it's red and this team is done. This is a huge, huge game coming up on Saturday. Last night does concern me because they just disappeared after they got that 1-0 lead, and they were never able to come back from that. When we come back, though, a guy who's doing a little bit better right now, Casey Alexander, former Lipscomb coach, who has left to take the head coaching job, vacated by Rick Bird after 33 years, Casey Alexander, who played for Rick Bird, coached underneath him for 16 years. He will join me to talk about how he made the decision and what his life has been like over this past few weeks. That is next. You won't want to miss it. Big Six rolling along here on 104.5 The Zone. Zone. 
1045 The Zone, your radio home for the Masters. Catch coverage of rounds three and four all this weekend on 1045 The Zone. Welcome back to the Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. Glad to have you with us here on a Thursday. I'm Jason Martin on Twitter at jmartzone, 615-737-1045 to join us. Jimmy Harper behind the glass, spinning the dials, radio style for me tonight. This ought to be fun, a conversation I'm looking forward to having. New Belmont men's basketball coach Casey Alexander joins me. Casey, uh, first off, congratulations. How are you? Thank you, and I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing good. So you got to take me through this. Uh, you know, I read, I really like oral histories of television shows and films and things like that. And this is, this is a story I would love to be the person that was, a, that I could write this story of just one day of your life because I don't know from a mental standpoint how you speak to one locker room. Yeah. Full of kids that you know so well and you know their parents and you brought them to school and you just took them through a wonderful run. And then within an hour, you're in a completely new room and just the emotional dichotomy between having to say goodbye, which is a tough move, and then saying hello and being ready to fire it up as the Bruins head coach. Yeah, it was a uh, you know, very unique situation. Doesn't happen like that. Gosh, I don't know if ever, honestly, you know, that somebody has the chance to do that. But, um, you know, at Lipscomb, we felt like it was important that those players heard it from me directly if they could. And then Belmont wanted the same thing. Uh, you know, they wanted, if possible, you know, let's let, you know, let's introduce you to the team before anybody else knows about it. You know, they need to be the first to know. And the proximity allowed us to try to pull that off, you know, and the plan was perfect. Uh, you know, I walk into the Lipscomb, I text our Lipscomb players at 9.30, tell them we need to meet after their 9 o'clock classes at 9.55 and um, make sure everybody's there. And so I spent about 15 minutes there, and then, um, and that was extremely emotional. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I drive to two miles to Belmont for their 10:20 meeting uh 25 minutes later uh, and um we have that meeting there and uh and that has a whole different flavor but uh you know the plan is perfect as it was I didn't really account for my own emotions <laughs> and so sure. that's the part where we got lost in the weeds a little bit what uh I mean you've only got a couple of miles so I mean it's yeah. not like you have a real time to sit there and decompress Right. Or change your mentality. So on that short drive between these two campuses, what is going through your mind as you've yeah. just said goodbye and you and you're about to then turn around and say hello? Yeah, it, well, I mean, there was no. It's not like there was any second guessing or anything like right, that. I right. mean, I, you know, I I knew that I was excited about being the coach at Belmont, and that was going to be a great opportunity for me. And I, you know, and those and those players there deserve you know, deserved my best when I walked into that locker room. So I was prepared to give them that. But, uh, you know, what I wasn't prepared for was how hard it was going to be to tell the Lipscomb players what I was doing. And, uh, you know, so it, it took me the better part of the drive, um, you know, to 
get myself composed and wipe the tears out of my eyes and everything else. And so, uh, but I think I pulled it off either way. I don't know if I was good in either locker room, but I, but I pulled it off. Shannon Terry, who you know really well from 24-7 Sports, he's a friend of this station as well. He phrased it perfectly as he was sort of explaining what he thought about your decision. He said, when mama calls, you come running. And mama called, in this case being Belmont. But you've built this school, meaning Lipscomb, over 70 wins in the last three years, really on the rise, a really good fan base. You know, And you've constructed this team, and I, and I know this is intentional on your part, with the same values the same moral integrity that Rick Bird was crafting at Belmont. It's a school that you had grown to love as well. So you talking about saying goodbye and how emotional you were, everybody thought, okay, Casey Alexander's the logical choice to go to Belmont. But how difficult was making what I do think was the right choice, but maybe not as easy a choice as some people might have thought? Right, yeah. Well, you know, you have to... You have to try your best to take the emotion out of it, honestly. I mean, and that's, you know, human nature. I mean, you know, feelings matter. And that, that's a, you know, feelings are a big part of, you know, how content you are with what you're doing and how excited you are with what you're doing. So you can't eliminate them, but you can't make these kinds of decisions based on, you know, emotion. You know, you got to try really hard to, you know, to make the best decision that makes the most sense. And so, you know, and I, I sensed that that was, Belmont from the beginning, but I wasn't sure. And uh, Lipscomb did a great job of, um, you know, showing commitment to not only me, but even more so the program and what they wanted to do. And uh, and so it became a really difficult decision. I've told several people, I mean, I had zero concerns about going to Belmont. There was not one thing that I questioned about whether or not that would be great. You know, it's just the the difficulty of leaving Lipscomb. You know, a lot of great relationships that we built there. I uh, love my team and the players that were in the program. Uh, had great leadership that I had great confidence in. So it was just it was just difficult from that perspective. Rick Bird makes a decision which I don't think caught a lot of us too off guard. I mean, eventually, you know him well. He was going to want to play some more relaxed golf and not have to worry about basketball quite as much. He's got nothing left to prove. But at the same time, you're coaching a team that's peaking. You've got to look at the tournament yourself, potentially for a second consecutive year. But then when that doesn't happen, you beat NC State. You get to New York. You beat Wichita State. You know that these questions are coming your way because you're inextricably linked to Belmont. Did this make this NIT run more difficult or if it didn't, how were you able to stay focused on the task at hand, even though I'm sure your brain is trying to tell you two conflicting things and you kind of wanted to shut up? Yeah, um, it, did, it didn't make it more difficult. I mean, I, I think I compartmentalized very well. Uh, it wasn't, you know, it, it's impossible to ignore, uh, you know, or not, or not think about, you know, and, you know, when I would walk by a table of people and they stopped talking, well, I knew what they stopped talking about. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was that kind of a thing. And so, um, you know, but we were, we had so much, you know, we, we were in New York. He, he retired on Monday. We played on Tuesday, you know, and then we win and we got to turn around and try to get ready for a game on Wednesday. We play on Thursday. So I, I really didn't have any time to even think about it or try to process it or, you know, I didn't even know when I would talk to Belmont, you know, I didn't know what Belmont would say. So I didn't, there wasn't any use in me spinning my, spinning my wheels trying to figure that part out. I had, I had other things to do. New Belmont coach Casey Alexander joining me here on the big six tonight. So 
I'm not reading the article, but if I were to write the first line in this article and it said something like, Casey Alexander is stepping into Rick Bird's shoes to become the next head basketball coach at Belmont University. If that's the first line in the article, what runs through your head about the sheer <laughs> magnitude of that statement, replacing a Rick Bird? Yeah. yeah, well, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not stepping into his shoes. I can't fill his shoes. Uh, you know, he's as good of a man as I'll ever know, and he's as good as a, of a coach as I'll ever know. And so I'm not um, – I'm not trying to be that. I got to be myself. I got to do things the way that I, you know, like to do them and want to do them and believe is the best way for me. And, um, you know, and then I got to just trust that, you know, and bet on myself a little bit that that'll be enough. But, you know, at the same time, I've got, you know, I'm heavily influenced by him. Uh, Part of my coaching DNA is, you know, is linked to his. And so there'll be a lot of similarities, you know, and in that sense, you know, I think I can exude some of the same qualities and characteristics and have the same kind of program and you know that Belmont wants and that's the reason I got hired since you know you you were head coach at Stetson and then we've seen what you've done at Lipscomb after being with Rick Bird for 16 years at Belmont now you're coming back home and I saw this quote from you after you took the job and maybe a little more exposition on it would be good for the audience you said you're better positioned much better positioned now to come back and lead in this case so what through your experience as a head coach and even as an assistant as well, has kind of changed how you do this job, if anything. What have you learned over this past handful of years as you have been a leader at some of these schools? Yeah, well, first of all, this is an easier transition, tenfold at least, just because, you know, usually when you take over a program, it needs work. You know, it needs culture change. You know, there's, you know, there's playing style differences. There's roster change. There's, co- you know, everything's new. I don't know the, I don't know the administration. I don't know the fan base. You know, none of that's the case here. Uh, so no matter what, I'm very comfortable. Uh, I already feel like I'm, you know, back and I never left in some degree, to some degree. But I also have the experience of taking over two programs in the last, you know, eight years. I also have the experience of coaching players that were, you know, that are not technically my own, uh, you know, that I didn't recruit them. And, uh, and then just all the go- things that go along being a head coach. I mean, managing a program, you know, morning, noon, and night, uh, making big decisions, um, you know, handling whatever comes your way throughout the day. Uh, you know, uh, none of that's really X's and O's stuff or what most people think coaching is. But uh, the truth is, being a head coach, the X's and O's is, is pretty minuscule, you know, when you start thinking about your responsibilities. You won the Skip Prosser 2018 Man of the Year Award. I grew up in Winston-Salem, wasn't born there, but, but I lived a, a long time there. And Prosser was always known as an ultimate gentleman. So you go and you win an honor for moral character. And you know that Rick Bird is somebody that's super honorable as well. He was always characterized as a classy guy that won the right way. And one of the things that that I don't like shying away from in any respect on this show is my faith and how important it is to my life and everything that I do. And so I ask you, Casey, how important is your faith and and your center being based in something unshakable that can help you navigate something like a a 12-win season or missing out on this recruit or whatever it might be, knowing that there is a plan and a design and that you're playing your part in that plan properly? Yeah, sure. Well, I would say, although very imperfect, uh, with plenty, um, plenty of junk, uh, you know, my faith is my center and core. Uh, it's, it's what grounds me. It's what guides all of my decisions, um, as best that I can make it. Um, 
And, uh, you know, and it's where I find my identity. You know, it's easy in our, in our business, you know, to find your identity in your, in your record or in what people think of you or whatever. And, um, you know, but I'm fortunate that that's not the case for me. And, uh, you know, I feel I'm, I'm very grateful for the doors that God's opened for me. Um, and, uh, and I'm grateful, you know, for the, for the comfort and knowing and exactly what faith is, is that no matter which door I choose, he'll go with me. One more for you, and I'm sure and I'm looking forward to talking to you as you as you continue kind of working your way into this job and moving into your first season. But you're you're walking into a team that made the tournament, got through the first four, losing some talent, obviously, on this squad. As you look at this roster, look at the job in front of you, how do you step into this job mentally? Not I'm not saying yeah. how could you do this, but yeah, I mean yeah. as you're walking in, what is your mindset taking the helm of this program? Yeah, I mean full of expectation. Uh, you know, Belmont people are used to winning and uh, playing for championships, and uh, they should feel no different uh, walking into next season. Uh, you know, a lot of things have to go your way for that to come to fruition. You know, we're going to lose a uh, an NBA draft pick uh, in Dylan Miller. Right. Uh, we, you know, we're going to lose an all you know an all conference player and an incredible performer, uh, senior year performer in Kevin McLean, and those are the two leading scorers and best players on the team and. You know, so there's a lot to replace. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I think it, um, you know, the program has been so steady for so long that there's a lot of capable players, and not to mention, you know, Nick Mizinski and Grayson Murphy, who had a great freshman season, and Caleb Hollander, who had great moments as a freshman, and, you know, and many more who made significant contributions. So, you know, that's that's the blessing for me in the whole thing, is you usually take over a program, like I said, and, and, you know, you got to figure out how in the world we're ever going to win games. Well, Belmont's used to winning games. You know, I just got to keep them screwing it up. Just a, about a half minute, I wanted to ask you one other thing. What did Rick Bird have to say to you after you made the decision? You know, in the, in, in, in the, you know perfect, the, the perfect Rick Bird way, he didn't, he didn't have to say a lot. You know, I mean, he, he, is, he is for me, and, he, and just like anybody, and for, you know, me making the decision I need to make based on my own terms. And he was going to love me and support me either way. And he's, I think he's happy that I'm the coach. Uh, I think he would have been happy if Brian Ayers was the coach. And Brian Ayers, you know, is a great coach that, that also deserved the job. Uh, but, um, you know, but he, he has always been a source of strength for me, and he always will be. Casey, you've earned it. Congratulations, man. I look forward to watching what you do and talking to you as we move forward. I do as well. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. That is Casey Alexander, the new head basketball coach at Belmont University. Coming up next, Tiger and Phil in the mix. Neither one of them on top of the leaderboard. A familiar face is there, though. We'll talk about it next. Big 6, 104.5 The Zone. We still have room under the cap, so we're giving you free money every weekday on the $1,000 payoff. You're shot at one grand four times every weekday at 8 a.m., 11 a.m., 2 p.m., and 5 p.m. All you have to do is listen for the national keyword. Then text it to 95819 to win. Don't text and drive, but do text to win. Rules and details at 1045thezone.com. The $1,000 payoff on 1045 The Zone. Glad to have you with us here on the Big Six on a Thursday, last show of the week. Some MRN racing for you tomorrow night. You'll be able to hear me, of course, Sunday morning if you're up 2 to 5 a.m. You'll hear me 2 to 4 here on 104.5 The Zone on the Jason Martin Show on Fox Sports Radio. Still stunned 
and so surprised and, and feel so blessed with that opportunity as well as this one and every opportunity. Casey Alexander, thanks to him for coming on as well. Great conversation with him. Really good dude. Replacing another really good dude in Rick Bird at Belmont. He says he's not replacing him. That's just the only word that I've got. He is taking that job. You don't replace a Rick Bird. Totally understand that mentality. So Eldrick went 70 today at Augusta in the first round. And he knows this course like basically nobody else. He loves this course. And if he's in the mix on Sunday, and there's not really any real reason to think that he might not be, then CBS is going to love it. Because there is no more must-see athlete in all the sports than Tiger Woods. And there is no more must-see event that that guy could play in to ignite interest than Augusta National and the Masters. No, he's not in the lead, and I predict he's not going to win. I'm still not sure four great rounds is in him at a major. He certainly can win, but I've been on record since this real kind of Tiger resurgence that I can't pick him to win a major against the field at this point because whether it's Dustin or whether or not it's Brooks Kepka or Rory or Justin Rose or Justin Thomas or Adam Scott or whoever, golf is such a difficult sport and only one of those guys or any number of other ones has to outplay Tiger Woods and he's going to finish second. And that really makes you go back to the run that he had at the apex of his career and just marvel at what an accomplishment it actually was and how difficult that might be to duplicate ever by anybody. Tiger usually these days has about half of his game rolling, but it's his putter that'll let him down for a round, or he'll be super erratic off the tee and cost himself birdie chances. He's going to have to use that short game, which has been exquisite his whole career, his iron play, that's always bailed out his inconsistent drives in terms of accuracy, just to save par. At the U.S. Open, that can win. At Augusta, that might be good enough for top 10. And this course can sometimes play pretty easy, at least in terms of scoring average. Sometimes it can be the opposite. It depends on weather, and it depends on pressure as well. We've seen Jordan Spieth and McElroy and Greg Norman all find ways to just blow huge leads on the back nine on Sunday. So Tiger is minus two right now. He's had some good saves. He had a really good one out of the sand early in the Thursday round. But he's got young guns in front of him, and he's got his old... Well, he's got his pay-per-view opponent, Phil Mickelson, in front of him as well. But Brooks Kepka and Bryson DeChambeau are both at six under. They are in the lead after the first round. And Mickelson, Phil Mickelson, is minus five. Another guy that really knows and loves this course. Then you've got Ian Poulter and Dustin Johnson. So you've got some real heavy hitters. This is a great first page of this leaderboard. And that puts Tiger in a tie for 11th after the first round. So... Nobody moves the needle in sports like Tiger Woods. Not Zion Williamson, not LeBron James, not even Tom Brady. When Tiger Woods is in contention on a Sunday, the world stops and begins paying attention. Even the most casual of fans, if they get the news that Tiger is somewhere close, they're going to flip over, they're going to get engrossed in this drama, they're going to get engrossed in these proceedings, and they're going to watch. This is invaluable for television. And it's the best entertainment you can find in sports, which is why the Masters and the U.S. Open are my two favorite viewing experiences each year. I love the divisional round of the NFL playoffs. I love the first couple of rounds of the NCAA tournament, just like you guys do. I love the NHL postseason because of just how dramatic it often turns out to be. There are a number of wonderful sporting events out there that you can consider. But the Masters and U.S. Open, the Masters from a television standpoint, just aesthetically watching it, it's the most pleasing to the eye thing you're going to see because Augusta is that gorgeous to watch. But both of them are so unpredictable. 
because the back nine at Augusta is such a challenge. It's wrought with potential for doom and disaster. And the U.S. Open is almost comically difficult a lot of years. And watching the best in the world try to navigate tidal waves and win this tournament even or plus one in U.S. Open is relentlessly fascinating to me. And it's not because I want to see the car crash or I want to see him fail. It's just impressive that they're capable of even handling a course like that at even par. One that's got like narrow fairways and greens that behave like ice the Predators would be playing on rather than grass you would be putting on. So the best story in all of sports is Tiger chasing Jack Nicklaus, or at least that was. Maybe it could be again, but the best narrative now is whether Tiger Woods can win a major post-Thanksgiving 2009 when he had the car accident around the world. Whether or not he can win a major post-2009 after Y.E. Yang beat him at the PGA. Something so many had tried before and failed to do, from Bob May to Rocco Mediate in various majors. And what's different about 2019 is that the younger players, the top top, the cream of the crop, these are guys that are not intimidated by Tiger Woods. It's not like it used to be. His presence doesn't make them all shrivel up into a ball and go into the fetal position. They believe, because they know it to be true, that they can beat Tiger Woods and that this is not exactly the same guy. Remember Augusta years ago was Tiger-proofed? But Woods isn't the longest hitter on tour anymore. And he's always got that nagging back or something with his leg that he might have to worry about because of that violent swing motion throughout much of his career. And he has sought over and over again to redesign that swing and make it a little more comfortable. And there are so many plot lines that are available this weekend. These next three days, as always, are going to be glorious entertainment and outstanding television. We are all, or nearly all of us, I think, are rooting for Tiger to finish. My favorite athlete, maybe my entire life. Him, John Elway, and there's a select guy, a select few guys. But I want to see him don that green jacket one more time, maybe even a couple of more if we're being honest. But it's how challenging that task is for him in 2019 that makes what was already super compelling somehow even more so. And so he's minus two. Friday, maybe he duplicates that. Maybe he goes even lower. We need him on the first page of the leaderboard on Saturday, on moving day, not to mention, obviously, on Sunday. CBS lost Zion Williamson before the Final Four. It was the second or third lowest rating for the NCAA championship ever on CBS. CBS does not want to lose Tiger before Sunday at around 5.30 Central Time at Augusta National, and you can believe that. i got a crazy master stat for you next. I also want to talk a little bit about Magic Johnson and the L.A. Lakers, and just people in the media and people in general taking ownership for their mistakes and not trying to excuse them away. We will finish up the Big Six coming up next here on 104.5 The Zone. The 2019 NFL Draft coming April 25th on the home of Titans Radio, 104.5 The Zone. Final segment tonight, final segment of the week here on the Big Six. As a matter of fact, I'm Jason Martin. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. Talk some Preds. Talk to Casey Alexander. If you missed any of what we have discussed tonight or any night, subscribe to the Big Six with Jason Martin on Apple Podcasts or Google or Spotify or wherever it is that you like to get your podcast, whatever your podcast catcher of choice is. You can consume this show however you want, whenever you want, if you're unable to listen to us live. We are brought to you by Renters Warehouse, dedicated to putting homeowners on the path to financial freedom through rent estate, to renting your home without having to do the hard stuff. Renters Warehouse, the rent 
estate company. So, well, one thing I want to say first is Monday, or I guess it would have been Tuesday after Virginia won the national championship, I talked about owning failure, not excusing it, and having your foundation in something unshakable. And I asked Casey Alexander that question as well about the importance of faith in his life. And I just wanted to say there are always, when I go into some of these topics, there are always a number of you that will send me some kind of a DM because I tell you, look, my DMs are wide open. If you want to have a conversation about something like that, I would love to have that conversation with you at jmartzone on Twitter. And, and I'll get a handful of responses or I'll get even an email or two from time to time as well every time I do that. And I just want you to know that if you send me that and you don't hear back from me for a time, I have seen it and I do plan to get back to you. I'm not ignoring you for any purpose other than I'm just a little bit busier these days than I used to be and it takes me time and I don't just want to send you, hey man, appreciate it, praying for you and then, you know, done. Like I actually want to have a response that's worthy of you taking the time to send me something. So just know that I will do my best to get back to you and that in the interim, in as often a chance as I can, I'm going to pray for you when I see a message like that pop up on my DMs. And that doesn't mean that, that I'm some expert or I'm going to be able to answer any questions. It just means know that you're not in this alone and that you have my support even if I can't get back to you immediately. I'm going to do my best to do that in every case. But sometimes it's, it's not possible as fast as I would like it to be. And I just want to apologize for that. And speaking of apologies in this final segment, I talked about owning failure. I think you should also own mistakes and you should own errors that you make. And there have been a couple of incidents over the past few days that stand out to me. One being Mike Francesa, sort of the, the guru, the deity of sports talk radio with what he and Chris Russo did with Mike and the Mad Dog years ago. Francesa, as he's gotten older, makes more and more mistakes and he's unwilling to admit when he makes them. And so he said last year, that Virginia would never win a national championship under Tony Bennett because they were terrible at offense. And so after Virginia won the national title, Ty Jerome of Virginia called into Mike Francesa's show and basically said, look, we were, number, we were in the top five in offensive efficiency ratings all year and basically called him out. And Mike Francesa tried to assert that he, didn't, that he never said that, that he had never said it before in his life. And they had audio that they were able to play to prove that, yes, indeed, he did say it. It is okay in this world, and I hope that I'm always someone that's going to do this for you as well. When I'm wrong, I hope that I will always tell you when I'm wrong. I feel like that is a lesson that we could all learn and be better from. It does take swallowing your pride and saying, you know what, I just totally goofed on that or I mispronounced that guy's name, or a couple of weeks ago when I said University of Vanderbilt, and some people got on me on Twitter and said, how can we take you seriously when you say University of Vanderbilt? And I laughed and said, you know what? You're right, Vanderbilt University, my bad, sorry. My bad is not the end of the world, folks. Taking responsibility and ownership is a way to grow from mistakes, and I think, it, hopefully, to gain some equity from an audience in my case, but anybody in your life. And so Anthony Davis finishes up his last game with the New Orleans Pelicans, and he's wearing a shirt in that last game a couple of days ago that says, that's all, folks. 
And instead of just saying what that means, which is what we already know, he's not going to be a Pelican. He's basically telling these fans, and he's told them for the back half of this season that I'm rolling out. He says, no, somebody lays out my clothes for me, and I just put that shirt on. It meant nothing. Just know, Anthony Davis, no one believes a word that you're saying. It doesn't help you to say it. It just gets people to mock you. And it makes people lose a little bit of respect for you in the process. I think that looking at that and looking at Francesa and looking at the pride that gets in the way or if something goes sideways that you thought might have been funny, they don't take it that way, just apologize for it. Say, yeah, okay, yeah, probably not the smartest move on my part. Okay, I got that one wrong. Because you still got it wrong whether or not you lie about it or not. On the way out the door, let's make you smarter. I told you I didn't think Tiger Woods would win another major. Well, this is an interesting stat. Dan Wetzel, who, of course, is on this show, a lot of good friend of our station, tweets out, in the last 13 Masters, the champion finished Thursday in the top 10. If that trend continues, DeChambeau, Kepka, Poulter, Dustin, Phil, Justin Harding, Adam Scott, John Rahm, Kevin Kisner, Affy Barnrat, Tiger, Tied for 11. Uh Uh-oh. Clear eyes. Full hearts. Can't lose. God bless and good night.